Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Hi. I, uh, I always knew about God. I knew about Jesus, and I knew about the Holy Spirit because I went to a lot of churches in my youth. But knowing about someone or something is not the same as knowing that person or thing and knowing them face to face. I became active in my church uh, and continued to search for answers, but I didn't quite have them all. Nobody ever does. In December of 1975, I came face to face with my answer. All the questions would be answered in a profound way. While attending a three-day retreat in upstate New York, we were sitting in a circle for prayer, and, and it was to be vocalized as a cross was passed around the circle. I was not a fan of corporate prayer. A small wooden cross was passed around to signify it was your turn to pray. I had it all worked out. I would simply bow my head, be quiet for a while, say a prayer, pass it on. Hmm. Well, plans are easier made than done. When the cross was passed to me, I grabbed it in my hand, held it, and I heard a voice. Yes. I looked around to see if somebody in the group was speaking to me. It was that loud. Everyone had their heads bowed. So I decided this is what Keith would call an aha moment, which I didn't know Keith at the time, but that's what it was. <laughs> and I said aloud, use me as you see fit, O Lord. The cross became light as a feather. I could pass it very easily on to the next person, which I did. My life had changed. However, I didn't know how hard it would become after that moment. My life imploded. There was chaos. No peace ensued. I was under attack. But that's a story for another day. I, re I reconnected with an old friend who lived in New York City at that time. And I started to attend Trinity in 1982. I became a member in 1983, and Peg and I were married November 12th, 1983, a double jeopardy date for me because it's also her birthday. <laughs> Pastor Charles Stevens married us. I don't know how many of you know Pastor Charles Stevens, but Keith renewed our vows at 25 years. We bought a house in the Poconos, spent a lot of weekends away. In 1997, I had a heart attack, followed shortly by a bout with cancer. I survived both, and they have not recurred. Trinity had changed, though, while I was gone. Full-time pastors weren't around for a while. They had visiting speakers each week. It seemed as though there was an undercurrent of some sort. But I still felt a magnetism pulling me back to Trinity. 
It's where I needed to be. I have always been a wanderer. Many times I have taken a wrong path. But somehow God always finds me and brings me back to the flock. Knowing about God and knowing God are two different things. My name is Dave Gillespie. And I am often the one that strays from the path, but I am also a follower of Jesus. And God always seems to find me and bring me home again. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share Christ if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the very end. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Dave. I can relate being a follower who often strays. (laughs) Welcome to Trinity this morning. If you are visiting with us today, we are thrilled you're here. Let me tell you um, how we routinely start this time. We get in these small conversation groups where I ask one question, and sometimes they're kind of light, sometimes they're a little bit heavier. Today's maybe a little deeper. And and we do this to make you as absolutely uncomfortable as possible. Um, No, we really want want to give you an opportunity to connect beyond just, um, you know, name and face recognition. So, Anyway, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Keith. Um, how long have you been at Trinity? And, and maybe it's your first time. Maybe you've been here since 1983, like Dave. Um, how, how long have you been here? And then I want you to, to answer this question. What is the question? Um, <laughs> have you ever had someone who cared deeply about you tell you something that was hard to hear because they wanted um, to help you? Have you ever had somebody tell you something that was hard to hear because they wanted to help you? And if they have, then um, how did you respond to that? You don't have to tell us what it was, but how did you respond? Okay, did you get defensive? Did you listen? What, What was your response to them? Okay, so turn, you've got about 90 seconds. All right, so how many of you have had that experience? Yes, we've all had that experience. I've had, that, I've had people say hard things to me um, more times than I would like to admit because I needed them. And I've responded in various ways over the years. When I was younger and I knew everything and I was always right, I would get defensive, and I would often um, try to turn it back on the other person and say, well, that's me, but what about you, right? And I, you know, 
That was my wife, by the way, who just, who just amen so loudly. Um, but over the years, I, I learned a few things. First thing is that I don't know everything, and I'm not always right. Second thing is that if someone really cares about me, and they're trying to speak truth to me, that I need to just shut up and listen. Because they're wanting to help me step into the, the fullness of life that God has for me. And don't I want to get better? Right? We, we're in this series called, Is Good Enough Enough? where we are, are making the assumption that all of us want, want to get better. All of us, none of us want to, to settle for a life that is just good enough. We all want to step into the fullness of life that God has for us. And, and that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Because the, the author of Hebrews talks about the, the supremacy of Jesus, that, that Jesus is, is better than the prophets, he's better than the angels. As we saw last week, he's better than Moses, and life with him is just better. It's better than anything anyone else has to offer. But there's, he, he's writing to these friends because these friends are beginning to slip. They're beginning to drift, and, and they're, they're not stepping into that life. And so, so this author says, i got to warn you about some stuff. I've got to say some hard things to you. And, and you will notice as we go through this book that there's about five or six places where this author um, says some hard words because he or she, we don't know which, really cares about this commu- this community. And that's one of the places what we're going to look at this morning. If you were here last week, you'll remember that the author told these friends that the, that the vital sign that demonstrates that a person truly is following Jesus is that he or she holds firmly to the confidence and hope that they have in Jesus. And, and, and that they demonstrate faithfulness in that. Not perfection, but faithfulness. So to illustrate this, the author is going to remind um, his or her Jewish audience of this uh, circumstance, this season in Israel's past where, where Israel um, came so far in their knowledge of, of God Yet they never really entered into the blessedness of the promised life that God had for them. And then this author is going to tell them how they need to respond to each other. How they need to interact with each other. And then it's gonna, he's going to end with three rhetorical questions intended to drive his point home. So let's start with the story. Hebrews 3 starting in verse 7, and this is the passage just before the, the one that Dave read to us. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, 
If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The author is quoting from from David in Psalm 95, where David is telling the story of Numbers 13. And some of you... um, Maybe many of you are familiar with the story, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. Israel was in bondage uh, in Egypt. And God delivered them by doing these ten miracles, sending ten plagues on the Egyptians, which enabled the, the Israelites to, to escape captivity. They, they go through the, the Red Sea on dry land as Pharaoh's army is pursuing them. Uh, God causes the Red Sea to crash down onto Pharaoh's army and, and destroy them so that Israel can escape. They're in the wilderness and God leads them by day with a, by a cloud and at night by a pillar of fire. God provides for them in the wilderness with manna and quail and water from a rock. I mean, God shows his faithfulness to this nation over and over and over. Israel comes to the Jordan River, and just on the other side of the river is is the promised land, the, the life of promise that God has for them. So they decide that they're gonna, they can't just go in, so they're going to send in these 12 spies to do a little recon on the land, you know, see where the cities are located and, and you know, how well they're defended and, and everything essentially that they would need so that the, the leaders of the nation can develop a plan for the conquest. These 12 spies go in and they come out Ten of them are all in a panic. Ten of them say, uh, you know, the the cities are are well fortified. They've got these big walls. We can never, the the people of the land are like giants. They make us look like grasshoppers. Essentially, their report is, we can't take this land. It's impossible for us to do this. Only Caleb and Joshua have a different report. They say, yeah, the cities are fortified. Yeah, the people are big. But have you forgotten what God has already done? Have you forgotten about the, you know, the deliverance from slavery? Have you forgotten about the provision in the wilderness? Have you forgotten about the, the power of God in our lives? And everything that God has done has been to bring us to this place so that we can go into the land. How can you think he wouldn't give us the, the land? But Israel didn't buy it. They chose to go the route of fear. They forgot everything that God had done, and therefore God then regarded their forgetfulness as rebellion. And essentially God said, okay, I'm done. I brought you this far. And you're not going to trust me to go the rest of the way? I'm done. 
and you will perish in the wilderness. And the children that you thought would fall prey in the wilderness, those are the people who are going to go in and take the land. As that great theologian, Frankie Valley, once sang, so close, so close, and yet so far. Israel came so close, and yet when they came right to the edge of believing God, they didn't do it. That generation passed just as assuredly as if they had never begun the journey in the first place. And David in Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You see, in 1500 B.C., under Moses, unfaithfulness brought death. Hearing, but not believing. In 1000 B.C., during David's time, in Psalm 95, the same thing was true. In 64 A.D., the author of Hebrews quotes it because it was true in his time as well. And friends, it is true in 2017. Whether it is 1500 B.C. or 2017 A.D., it is true. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts and not respond to it. I love Dave's testimony because he heard God's voice and he responded. And remember who this author is is writing to. He's talking to good, moral, religious people. But they're drifting and they're showing um, unfaithfulness in their lives. And, And so the author is worried that maybe they've just put on the veneer of religion but never really entered into the promise of God by trusting in Jesus. So he takes Psalm 95, which recounts Numbers 13, and he applies it to them saying there is this age-old principle of people hearing but not responding. And so he says, beware. When you read the gospel stories, do you think there were, there were ever any people who, who hung out with Jesus but didn't really believe in him? Yeah? You think there were any of those? Yeah. There were a bunch. People followed Jesus often because of self-interest. Some of them would follow him because they could get a free meal. Uh, some because he did some really cool stuff and healed some people and others followed him because, um, well, everybody else was. Uh, Judas hung out with Jesus. Judas hung out with Jesus because he thought Jesus was going to be this political Messiah and Judas wanted to rule with him. See, Judas didn't really believe in Jesus. Judas followed Jesus out of his own self-interest. Do you think that's true today? People go to church today, you know, some, some of you guys are here today because you just want to eat and you know we have food. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, Mercedes was here yesterday baking up so we could have some fresh baked stuff. Um, 
some of you come to church because it feels good and you you know you you there's something about it that just feels good there's some places in our country that you can't get elected to to office unless you subscribe to Christianity in some form or fashion. See, there are a lot of people who subscribe to Christianity in one way or another because it satisfies self-interest. But the author says in verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters. The, the Greek word for translated here as see to it is the word blepo. And it literally means beware. Beware because what was true in Moses' day, what was true in David's day is true today. See to it. Beware, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And he's not talking to a bunch of party animals. He's talking to 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 a group of people who know their Bible, who would have been able to give you the, the day that they raised their hand and said, said the prayer. They could give you the date of when they, they got baptized. These are good folks. You dads out there, these are guys that you would want your daughter to date. But the author is saying, I'm worried that you're missing it. I'm worried that you raised your hand and said the prayer, but you're not really stepping into this life that God is offering you through Jesus. Uh, how many of you got your flu shot this winter? How many of you who didn't get the shot got the flu? Okay. Um, no, we've all been vaccinated at some point, right? What happens when you get vaccinated? And I'm not talking about you scream because you don't like shots. You get infected, right? A vaccination gives you just a little bit of the disease so you don't catch the real thing. And all too often, that's what the American church does. Is it gives you just a little bit so that your body fights it off and you don't catch the real thing. The author says, beware. I wonder how many people in New York City this morning are at church. They've got on their hip clothes. Uh, They're looking good. They're singing the songs. They're sounding good. They're putting money in the plate. That's feeling good. They got their children into Sunday school, and that's all good. And yet, they don't really know Jesus. They know about him, but they don't know him. They've never really put their trust in him. I wonder how many people would say, yeah, I'm going to heaven because I've, I've lived a good life. In essence, they say, I've been good enough. And they're not trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. They're trusting in their own self-righteousness. I wonder how many people in this room this morning are in that place where we're still holding on 
to I think I've got it. And we, we've come right up to the edge of the promise. But we haven't gone in. One of the great things about the book of Hebrews is that it lets us see unfaithfulness for what it is. You know, we see people who call themselves Christians but are living a life that is so not representative of Jesus. And they're unrepentant. And we say, oh, it's not, a, it's not good what they're doing. But, you know, they're Christians and so God will forgive them. What this letter is saying is maybe they're not Christians. Maybe they've come up to the edge, but they've never actually stepped in. Friends, we're going to have to stand, as the author says, before the living God. We're not going to stand before a doctrine or a theory or a church board. We're going to stand before the living God who so despises sin that he cast angels from his presence, humans out of the garden, and he, he slayed his own son in order to appease his wrath. i got to tell you, if God will allow a generation of people to perish in the wilderness because they didn't trust in him to take them into the promise, what will he do to people who casually throw around the name of his son who died for them that they might have real abundant life? Beware, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Verse 13, here's how we are to respond to each other. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What do you do when you see somebody heading down the wrong path? What do you do when you see someone you care about who is settling for good enough when you know they could have the best? What do you do? You come alongside of them and encourage them. You press courage into them so that they can step into the better life. You know, often we see encouragement as as giving somebody a compliment or, or saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry, it'll get better, you know, cheer up, big guy. Biblically, that's not encouragement. Biblically, um, the Greek word is parakaleo, and it means to exhort. It means to, to urge one to pursue some course of conduct that is looking to the future. And it is always in contrast to seeking um, present comfort. Encouragement is pointing someone, as the author said in verse 6, to the confidence and the hope of which we boast. That is in Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. It is not our job to judge other people. Amen? I am, not, I am not your judge. And you are not my judge. God, that's God's job. My job 
is to come alongside of you. Your job is to come alongside of me. And when we are not stepping into the life that God has for us, we are to encourage, we are to press courage into so that we can help each other get to that place. Um, This is hard to do. Paul said to the Galatians, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And when he says, if someone is caught, he's not talking about, aha, I caught you. He's talking about being trapped. If somebody is trapped in a sin, um, somebody that we love, somebody that we care for, we're to come alongside of them and restore them. How? Gently. You speak truth, but you speak it in love. You, you confront, you exhort, but, but you do it gently. Often when we do this, we're misunderstood. Often when we do this, we're seen as judgmental. That's why I asked the question at the beginning of this message. How often when people are are challenged, do they respond by saying, who are you to judge me? Right? They get defensive. Heck, I get defensive at times. Still do. But isn't that a sign of a hardened heart? See, people who really know Jesus are humble. And they listen to rebuke. They listen to exhortation. They they understand it as someone trying to press courage into them so that they can step into the life that God has for them. When, When you come to people like this and and say the hard thing to them, you know, they'll respond. They'll say, wow, you know, I I haven't thought about it that way. Or, you know, I I didn't realize I was, I I was doing that. Or I, you know, you're right. I, I, I'm going off on the wrong track and, and they'll, they'll turn back toward God. They'll respond. But then there are others who will say, why are you being so judgmental? Christians are just so dogmatic. And they'll walk away. Friends, encouragement is a hard thing to do. To press courage into someone. To remind someone of the hope that they have in Jesus. But that's what we are called to do for each other. He goes on, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Notice he doesn't say we have come to share in Christ because we hold our conviction. He says we've come to share in Christ if we hold our conviction. As as I talked about last week, this is not a condition of salvation. It's an indication of. You see, when... 
um, when we hold our conviction, as he says in verse 15, or verse 6, and, and hold firmly, verse 14, till the end, the confidence we had at first, our confidence in Jesus, that he is our salvation, he is our hope, he is our glory, and nothing else. We, when we hold on to that, because there's nothing else to hold on to, that's evidence of our faith. Verse 15, as has, just been, as has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And there's a, a key word in this verse that, that the author repeats several times in this section and even in chapter 4. Uh, the word is today. In verse 7, he says, today, if you hear his voice. In verse 13, it says, as long as it's called today. Verse 15, today, if you hear his voice. In, in chapter 4, he uses it two more times. What is this today that he's talking about? Today is referring to that season in a person's life before they have to stand before God. That time when they have opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. That's what today is. And this author is saying to his, to his or her friends, uh, you've listened. You've heard about Jesus. But there seems to be a coldness in your heart toward Jesus, and that makes me concerned as to whether or not you've ever really come to know him. The author is trying to get these folks to take a, a look at their lives and so that they don't miss the opportunity to step into salvation, to step into the, the promised abundant life that Jesus has for them. The author is saying, don't just hear it. Don't just put on a veneer of religion. Really believe. Trust in Jesus. Finally, the author has asked three rhetorical questions to drive home to drive home his point. Verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those who Moses led out of Egypt? Yeah. It was those folks who saw the power and glory of God. Verse 17. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? Yes, same people. Verse 18. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? What was their disobedience before God? Verse 19. One word, unbelief. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Or as he said in verse 12, an unbelieving heart. The author is saying to his, these readers, you may have in you what dead Israel had in them. that they were started the journey 
They were brought to the threshold of the promise. And yet when it came to believing God and actually stepping into the promised life, they were so close, so close, and yet so far. They just couldn't go in. I wonder how many of us have settled for what we think is good enough. We go to church, we go to our small group, we have fellowship, we say we believe all of this stuff. But when it comes right down to it, to falling on our knees and saying, God, I am a sinner and I trust in nothing but Jesus. We just can't go there. We just can't get there. We hold on to something else and we just don't believe. We may hold on to our career. We may hold on to a relationship. We may hold on to doing things the way that we think things ought to be done. We may hold on to, well, I'm a good enough person. But whatever it is we hold on to, essentially, it is unbelief. We come so close, but we just can't trust and go in. Friends, I got to tell you, close doesn't count in Christianity. Close counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. But it doesn't count in Christianity. You see, people who never went into the promise died just as assuredly as if they had never left Egypt in the first place. As if they had raised their fist to God right in Egypt and said, no, I don't believe in you. Just as the firstborn Egyptians died in the Passover, these Jews died in the wilderness. They came close, but because they didn't believe, They never entered in. I must do my job this morning and say to you, as David said in his day, as this author said in his, beware. Beware. Lest there be anyone among us who has adorned ourselves with religion. We have come out following Moses and the law. We've gone right to the edge of the promise, but we said, that's good enough. And we haven't entered in. Beware. Close doesn't count. We need to come to the point in our life and the quietness of our heart where we don't just add Jesus to our present lifestyle, but we repent of our sin and we ask Jesus Christ to assume his rightful position in our lives as Lord and we take him as our Savior, trusting in nothing else. Only then will we enter into the promise. Only then will we enter into the abundant life that God has for us in Jesus. You have heard So don't harden your heart. Trust him today because your today will not last forever. 
Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you do not demand perfection, but what you do want is faithfulness. Lord, I pray for those of us this morning who have the veneer of religion, but we've never really stepped into the promise. Lord, I pray that that you would convict us and that you would speak and that we would hear and respond. Lord, I pray this for your name's sake. Amen.